Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to McKnight Tonight. Because he cannot keep quiet and has so much to say, Jonathan Coleman is my guest once again. Is my taxi here yet? <laughs> I've called an Uber and I've called a cab. Hey, by the way, Rob, congratulations on getting a second series of Tonight McKnight Tonight. I commissioned it myself, Jono. Oh, it's well, so easy when you're good. doing your own podcast. I think it's a good idea. That's, congratulations. <laughs> it's like one of my favourite movies that I always laugh about with my son, Oscar, is the Alan Partridge movie. Who's oh, like, yes. He's like an, Eng- well, it's an English actor by the name. He was a very funny guy as well, but um, um, he plays this DJ called Alan. Alan, uh, I'm going to say Alan McKnight. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Partridge, who um, is always talking about another series on BBC television. And there was that he's like this DJ who then goes from working on the radio to being on digital radio to yes. being on North Norfolk Digital. But uh, Steve Coogan, he's a very funny yes. guy, who also did the movie, um, um, the, you know, very serious movie that was nominated for an Oscar and everything called, uh, oh, it was a woman's name. Oh, God. Philomena. Okay. So, uh, so he did a movie called Philomena, which was fantastic, right. all about the woman who gave up her uh, child, and it was based on a real story and all that kind of stuff. But that's Oscar and I love the uh, Alan Partridge, who I always said, oh, I'm doing this uh, podcast with Rob McKnight. <laughs> And I'm doing this interview for so-and-so talking about my prostate cancer. And then Oscar sends me a text back going, oh, Alan, you're all puffed up like a robin. He <laughs> <laughs> wants to quote lines out of the movie because we've seen it about 20 times. Tell me, uh, let's go back to when you moved to the UK. Um, it was around 1990, wasn't it? Yeah, halfway through 1990, Margot and I got married uh, Taronga Zoo in Sydney. Uh, we were the first when they first allowed people to get married at, at locations rather than a church mm-hmm. or whatever registry office. So we got mar- married at Taronga Zoo with a bunch of our friends and uh, the, the Reverend from the Wayside Chapel and all that. So we had three bands playing because <laughs> my friend Neil Clugston was working at BMG RCA. So we had like. Girl overboard and you know. Oh wow! Yeah, it was it was crazy. It was great fun. Understated. Yeah, yeah, and you know, a message from John Farnham. Press, <laughs> press play, and I, oh, here's one from Glenn Wheatley, etc. Uh, and the guys from Dragon, blah blah blah. So then I thought, well, look, I'm not doing Saturday Morning Live. It's 1990. I'm married. Margot and I have been living together for 10 years, just about anyway. Um, and I started sending a few 
tapes around. Do you remember VHS tapes? I do. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd send some to America and because I was obsessed with David Letterman. Dano mm-hmm. and I were both obsessed with Letterman from when we used to work at Channel 9 and Channel 7. We'd watch Letterman coming through over the satellite every day in the afternoon or Saturday Night Lives coming from Channel 9. We'd be getting these beta tapes from the 9 switching room and all that sort of stuff until uh, they'd say, what happened to the, the Saturday Night Live tape or the Letterman tape? And, oh, uh, Packers kids were up at the Palm Beach house and they wanted to watch American football. And it was like, oh, my God. And that would get in the way of us getting So he'd, out. he'd override the satellite and so you couldn't get the recordings. They'd, they'd ring the switching room at TCN and say, um, we want to watch the American basketball or whatever it was. <laughs> Can you change the channel at, uh, at uh, Channel 9 headquarters in LA? So it was things like that. So that's one of my things. But you didn't go over to the UK with a job, right? Um, yes, I did actually. Ah, so you went over to the UK with a job. I went over the UK with a job. Yeah, you've done your research. Um, <laughs> I went to America as well um, from the UK because my obsession was like I wanted to go on the Letterman show and I wanted to do this and I wanted I wanted to be like that and work in American TV. But then I also realised that I had a, a British passport and I was born in England, so I was a dual citizen. It was just very popular if you're in politics. Not. <laughs> um, so I uh, sent these tapes around. I got this phone call from from England saying, hi, we're calling you from the power station, which is part of British Satellite Broadcasting, which was like the arrival to Sky and Rupert Murdoch. Would you like to come over and do a show on the power station? Which was like That's what, amazing. what they'd seen on Saturday Morning Live on my show reel with me with Huey Lewis and me with this one and that one. Um, and, you know, you'd do a show uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. Boy George has a show on Friday night called uh, Blue Radio. And there was Suggs on Saturday, Suggs from Madness. So all these people that I'd sort of known and interviewed from saturday morning live and various Mm. radio shows and i said well it's a six-month contract or whatever would you come over and i said to margo look i'm not doing a tv show now i'm not doing i'm doing sort of nothing to lose yeah and i said to margo why don't we take a punt she was working with alex proyas making ads and music videos producing all that sort of thing Uh, he was about to go off and do stuff in america as well and the uk so we, uh, we said, like, let's do it. And I spoke to Steve Visard because I was still doing bits and pieces for the Steve Visard show, Tonight Live, I think it was called. Oh, one of my favourite shows. <laughs> they had did such a, an influence they, on me. They did a live cross to my house. <laughs> the night I was packing to go to England, it was oh, yeah, so they had a they had a Lynx van outside my house in Annandale, and they crossed to me live in my bedroom packing my bag with all these comedy things. Um, so it was that kind of it was that sort of time in television where it's like let's go to Jono's house and get a thing about him going to England. So yes, the bottom line is I went there on a six month contract, uh, which turned out to be sixteen years. So we went there, Margot and I both without children at that stage. Um, and the power station thing was great fun and working with people like Chris Evans. Mm. Uh, and So bo- you worked with him originally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did the rivalry develop? There was always a rivalry in that regard because he was doing a show called Power Up, Power Up uh, 
which was like the breakfast show right. on the power station. So it was like a music show, a bit like Saturday Morning Live, but like a music uh, version of the Today Show. Uh, and I was doing a swing shift with John O'Coleman, which was like, I think, nine o'clock at night um, or seven o'clock at night or something like that. And as I said, like Suggs would do a show and Boy George and um, they did a Kerrang show, which was like a heavy metal show. And uh, and Chris Evans was also, oh, I got this bloody Australian bloke. And, and we got on fine. But then when Virgin Radio started mm. and then Chris Evans was on that as well, there was this kind of thing about he got the feeling I was following him and, you know, everywhere he went, I was going, you know. It wasn't really like that at all. And then... Uh, I was doing. But then you went head to head. So on Vir- uh, on Virgin Radio, he was on, he went to BBC Radio. Mm. He left Virgin Radio, and then Russ and I got to do the breakfast show because Russ was doing the breakfast show on his own at the at the beginning. And then they said, "Why don't you come off afternoon and evenings?" I was doing six till ten at night, I think, um, and go in and keep Russ company in the morning. And that became the Russ and John O breakfast experience. And then. Chris Evans was on Radio 1 doing his breakfast show. So we were up against him and up against Chris Tarrant on Capital and he had the biggest audience in London mm-hmm. and then he invented a little show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? <laughs> him and David Briggs. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a radio, um, it was a radio competition. Was it? Originally, yeah. And then David Briggs said, I've got a way that we can make this into a TV show and they started punching it around. That became a phenomenon. One of the biggest, mm. you know, millionaire hot seat still going. And uh, that came out of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Chris Tarrant was doing it in England. And uh, I don't know who was doing it in Australia at that time. Eddie, well, Eddie, Eddie McGuire, McGuire yeah, always hosted yeah, it. Yeah. Um, how were your ratings? On Virgin, when it first started, they weren't that big. They were like about 3%. But we had like about a million people. You know, mm-hmm. in English terms, there's 55 million people. So yeah. in London, I think it was, you know, Tarrant had like three million or something so like that. Tarrant's the big number one, mm. but you and Evans are fighting. How did his ratings compare to yours? Well, because you? we were on Virgin, which was national, mm-hmm. so we were on AM, and, and he was just London, was he? No, uh, Chris Tarrant was London only. Yeah, whereas Chris Evans was on BBC Radio One, which was national, right? And that was that they, they always had a bigger audience because mm-hmm. we were on AM nationally, right? And uh, Radio One was on FM, so we were behind the eight ball in in some way. So he kind of basically outrated us most of the time but then we would say well we're actually outrating him in london because chris evans was originally from up north so he had the northern accent right and uh, that didn't appeal to some people in london okay so you found you found your hook. niche you found your hook and yep. you were able to publicize a win yeah and you started throwing a lot of stones at him, didn't you, publicly? Well, it was the we had Freud Communications as our publicity company, and it was Matthew Freud who is now huge. And Matthew Freud wanted the Virgin Radio business and wanted to get in the good books with Chris uh, with with um, Richard Branson. Right. So he said we will do the publicity for Russ and Jono on Virgin and get them some pub- more publicity nationally. And part of that was we're going to. We're going to niggle away at Chris Tarrant on Capital and also niggle away at Chris Evans on on BBC Radio 1. But Evans didn't like it. No. 
Because wasn't there a thing where he didn't want to work Fridays because he was doing a, a TV, TV show, show and he, you said, man up? Uh, yeah, yeah, there was a bit of that. There was a lot of that, actually. And also, Piers Morgan stitched me up once because he said, we're doing a story about Chris Evans wanted Thursday off and Friday off from his radio show because he's doing his TV show, you know, on Friday nights on Channel 4. And we're doing an open letter to Chris Evans and we want you to be one of the people giving him a bit of advice, you know, maybe not be surrounded by a posse of people that laugh at all your jokes and maybe be a little <laughs> bit more humble or whatever. And then that story came out the next day or the day after and it was John O'Coleman's open letter to Chris Evans. <laughs> so, so Piers Morgan dropped everyone else and it became me. Well, was there ever anyone else? Maybe it was Who only knows? ever you, John I was stupid enough to be sucked in by, by uh, <laughs> Piers Morgan. Hasn't he done well? Um, <laughs> so it was. Uh, I mean, I must say, in 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 hindsight, it was a, it was pretty amazing at the time. Um, but it wasn't really meant to be that thing. But it was the kind of battle of breakfast time, and mm. that's what the tabloid newspapers. There's nine newspapers or whatever. Yeah. So they love that. You know. You know, Russ and Jono fight it out with Chris Evans, and Evans slags well, off the Aussie kind of publicity DJ. that made you front page news at times. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, the one that really made me front page news was at, at, at Heart FM when I was working with a lady called Cara Noble yeah. and she was working at with Tarrant in the old days with a girl, a girl called Sophie who is now the Duchess of Wessex. Of course. And Sophie had a bit of a, various photographs taken with, with Chris Tarrant when they were in Hong Kong doing a capital FM OB with her breasts out and all that kind of stuff. And the biggest scandal I was ever involved in was when Cara Noble was supposed to do a deal with Sophie to give her those pictures back before she married Prince Edward. And what happened was she sold them to the the Sun newspaper. So that became a front page. And um, I was embroiled in that. <laughs> because you just happened to be there. She was the co-host of the yeah. show on Heart. It was Jono and the morning crew with Cara Noble. <laughs> and then one, they're going, it's okay, Cara's going to give the photographs back to Sophie Reese jones or whatever, and they're going to do a deal. She's going to set fire to them or whatever. It'll be great publicity for Heart. And then what happens is that she accepted a, a large amount of money to sell those <laughs> pictures of Sophie and Chris Tarrant in Hong Kong when they were all doing the OB for the Capital Breakfast Show years earlier, which when she was about to get married to a member of the royal family. So all hell breaks out and I get a phone call from my boss at heart going, okay, um, it's the front page of the Sun today. The first four pages are these photographs. It's in, it goes to, it goes to parliament that it's brought up in Parliament. They're going, don't say anything about it. Tarrant's not saying anything. Uh, you being told not to say something about it. Come on. Okay. You. What do I do? Cara's not coming in. Cara probably won't be back. Um, there'll be publicity. There'll be there's there's journalists outside the front and the back of Heart FM of the, uh, in West London. So just go straight That's in. Amazing. Don't talk to the press. And I get there and there's like... 15 or 20 photographers. There's a TV. There's two TV trucks. There's GMTV or whatever it was called then. There's the BBC. And I'm going, shit, what do I do? And I go, drive around to the back because I'm in the car that picks me up every morning. And we go around the back. All the journalists start running around the back. There's, there's more journalists and photographers around. There. Anyway, long story short, they ring up and say, okay, Tarrant's on Capitol now, slagging Cara off for what she's done. And um, you can talk about it. 
Oh, wow. And I'm going, all right. And uh, so that just blew up. And it was in every paper. It was on the news. It was like, is this the worst woman in Britain? Could Cara Noble have done this to Sophie, a woman she used to work with? She's about to join the royal family. She's about to be the Duchess of Wessex. This went on for ages. And then they started digging up all the tabloid dirt on Cara Noble. And Do you think she regrets it? She, I think she does. She ha- she'd had to disappear. She went to America. She went to Spain. She had to hide out because the tabloids were just looking for her everywhere. So I'd get phoned up saying, what do you think of this and what do you think of that? Have you heard from Cara? Blah, right. blah, blah. So that was probably the biggest ra- – that kind of made the Chris Evans um, spat <laughs> fade into you know, insignificance, apart from the fact that once Chris – Evans wouldn't accept his Sony Radio Award because... Yes, tell me about this story. This is another another one. It was, we'd been, I think this was, Virgin Breakfast had won a certain amount of Sony. This is at the Sony Radio Award. Which is huge. It's the biggest radio awards in the, in the British calendar because it's lots of BBC radio shows, lots of commercial radio shows. So the night's going through and you win the award for? Best breakfast radio show uh, <laughs> in in London. I think it was London. And then... So you've uh, gone up, collected your award. Yeah. Hey. And I mentioned Chris Evans, of course. Oh, going, did you? It's a pity Chris isn't here tonight because, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure he would have loved it because he got best... You know, he got best broadcaster best or something. Broad, yeah, British broadcaster. But he wouldn't go up and accept it. No, I can't remember if he was there or not. I don't think he even turned up. He just said, I'm, I'm not going. If, oh, did he know ahead of time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think they knew. He knew that he was nominated and was probably tipped to get broadcaster of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then we had a feeling that we might get um, best breakfast show, best London right. FM breakfast show. So um, he said, I'm not going to pick up. So one. that just added to the rivalry. Mm. And um, good, you played it down. It's all good now. Uh, well, <laughs> I think he was able to sack you. Well, he, he was able to talk to Richard Branson. Well, didn't he buy a controlling stake? Yeah, but then he got sacked and got and then got sued by by. Uh, he sold it back to I can't remember. So he a, sold it back, then got sacked himself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and he he, uh, he lost seven million because he then countersued Virgin for sacking him. Or counted, and then he he lost the case, and it cost him seven million pounds. Amazing, but let's go. <laughs> it's so complicated. It's so complicated. But let's go back to you for a moment. Mm-hmm. You're working away. Chris Evans buys a big stake in Virgin. Next thing you know, you're out. No, we were actually. I was in Australia Christmas time. Yes, so you'd come back for your annual holiday, and they say, uh, I think a fax or my manager John Noel rang me from London saying, "You're not going to believe this." Um, uh, Richard Branson has decided to give Chris Evans the breakfast show and you and Russ are being moved to drive time on the same money. And I'm going, oh, okay. And he said, you know, it's a bit of an insult to you, but you're getting the same money. And I said, fine. You can sort of live with yeah, that. I can live with that. And then uh, it sort of one thing came to another. Um, we uh, we sort of buried the hatchet. I didn't see very much of him because I wasn't coming into like. So this wasn't immediately. No, it got it got okay. picked up. It got picked up here as 
John O'Sacks from Breakfast. See, that's the thing. You've got to remember, this is before the internet. Yeah. So we didn't even realise how big you were. I'll come to that in a second. Yeah. So, okay, so let me get my timings right. So he's actually come, and you guys are working at the same yeah, station. Yeah, yeah. We were still working at Virgin Radio in uh, in Number One Golden Square, which is now Bauer Media, funnily <laughs> enough. So um, it's it's bizarre that, uh, that, that it's still a radio station. I went down there and had my photograph taken in front of Number One Golden Square, which we'd done years and years before when Virgin first started. So Chris Evans is doing breakfast on Virgin Radio, our old show. Russ and John, I were doing four till seven at night or something like that, drive time. And um, in the end, I can't remember, I think I got a better offer. I got fired from drive time, I think. On you another definitely trip got to fired. Yeah, I've read yeah, the article. Yeah, I think I got fired. I got. I get confused. I get fired from all over the place. <laughs> Ida Butros once said to me, "You haven't made it in this industry until you've been fired." Exactly, and then and, and then uh, it was another one of those trips back to Australia, and they went, um, "Jono, they're they're discont- Russ has decided to stay on drive <laughs> or mornings, and uh, you've been let go. They've paid out your contract, which was only had about three months to go anyway, mm. and then." I said, oh, wow, that's sad and that's a bit unfortunate and a bit surprised and, and sad that Russ decided to do that. Then we come back to London. I've got no job. Well, not really. And then I get a phone call from my manager, John Knoll, who's amazing, goes, uh, guess what, John Knoll? Uh, he's a northerner as well. Right. He goes, had a phone call from uh, Mark Story at uh, Heart at Chrysalis, which is basically the opposition of Virgin is Chrysalis Radio. <laughs> How would you like to do the breakfast show on uh, – on Heart 106.2. This is the one you're going to work with Cara Noble, blah, blah, blah. Oh, it's going to be amazing. called Jono and the Morning Crew. So from being unemployed for about four weeks, that's amazing. suddenly I'm up against the Virgin on uh, on on Heart. That's brilliant. You know, I, was, I alluded to it a moment ago, but seriously, Australians had no idea how big you were. I, My wife and I, around 1990-2000, did a first big trip mm. to um, London. And of course, one of the first things I do is turn on the TV. I want to see, oh, what's English yeah, television yeah. like? And I see you pop up. And I went, they know John O'Coleman. And the way they spoke about you, you weren't some person who just came in that nobody knew. You were an accepted part of the culture. It I'd was been, amazing to watch. I'd been there quite a long time because, mm. I mean, you know, 1990, halfway through 1990 was when I started on the satellite TV and then from that I ended up doing stuff on Good Morning Britain and GMTV yeah. and uh, stuff on Sky News. And the weirdest thing is one of the guys I worked with on Sky News was a producer called Ben Darcy who's now working for the ABC for the last 10 years in Adelaide, and he's Oscar Coleman, my son. It's his boss. No. And he employed me on Sky News to work with Adam Adam, Bolan, Adam Bolton. He employed me to work on Sky News with Adam Bolton, doing little funny skits or little editorial bits at the end of, of the, you know, or doing the papers on Sky News. And that was Ben Darcy, who also employed a guy called Neil Sean, who I work with I on the radio and who worked and did does regular regular stuff on Studio Ten. Yeah. So it's kind of you know it's it's a small world. It is a small world. You accidentally mentioned Adam Boland. He almost sacked you once. 
Did he? Yes. Oh, that's right. That was on Sunday. You gave away the Harry Potter ending. Well, I didn't actually because uh, that was when I was doing my stuff on Sunrise. That was when I'd come back to Australia. I got taken out by Adam and Michael Pell and the big lunch with Molly and myself and they said, you know, we want you and Molly to do stuff and Molly's going to do be our rock and roll guru on Sunrise and John, I, we want you to do like regular movie reviews and just come on and be there every Thursday doing movies with Mel and Koshy. And then there was one, there was a story that they were talking about, about the Harry Potter book and how this nasty teacher in England had uh, said, well, you're all going on holidays and you, I know you're going to be reading that wretched Harry Potter book. Well, I'm going to tell you the ending now. So you do your homework and don't waste your time reading Harry Potter. <laughs> and she told them the ending of the book. Right. And that was you know, uproar in England. And then I made a joke about it with Mel and Koshyung going, oh, well, you know, I can, I, I think that's a bit nasty, but I can understand. I mean, it's not much of an ending, let's face it. I mean, I think Harry gets married and he goes out and lives in the suburbs, marries to Yumini or whatever her name is, and, and they have a little house and some children and a white picket fence. And I think Koshy. They thought I was telling the real ending. I hadn't read the, right. the book and, and I didn't even know what I've seen all the movies and I love the movies. But then Koshi goes, what the hell are you doing? We'll take a break and when we come back, John, I won't be here. Oh, wow. You actually said that. Yeah. So then all hell breaks loose. I say, look, I, I didn't, I didn't, haven't read the books. I don't know what Koshi's up upset about, but I'm happy to do an apology tomorrow on the show because I said people, mummies and daddies are ringing from all over Australia uh, to complain about Jono giving away the ending. I said, what is the ending? What happens? Do they get married? Do they, you know? But in an extraordinary idea, your fate was put to public vote. Adam Boland decided that the viewers of Sunrise would decide whether you got to keep your job or not. I don't think anything like that's ever been done. He never told me he was going to do that either because they sent a, they send a camera crew around to the to the, my house in in Linfield in Sydney and I did a piece to camera going look I'm really sorry I did, haven't read the books so I blah 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 I'm really apologise to all the S- Sunrise viewers and to Mel and Koshy blah 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 you know these things happen but it was a joke I haven't read it I love the movies and blah 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 that runs uh, and then the next thing I see is this thing from well. We've decided that uh, Sunrise is your show, Australia. So you decide. Call this number if you think Jono should get his job back or call this number if you think Jono shouldn't get his job back. Hell of a position to be in. The, un- the funny thing is, though, they didn't realise or they'd forgotten that Dano and I were doing national drive time radio on WSFM and on 32 stations around Australia. So I went, so on, the, the call out. I went on the radio that afternoon and for about the next two days I've said, you've got to get behind it. Here's the number to call. And all they did... I he gave out the John should get his job back number on uh, on those thirty two radio stations. How many calls did you make, John? Oh, I don't think I. I made a few. I think. Yeah, I think, I think you I think did. It, it was one of those ones where you didn't have to talk to anyone. It just said thank you. Yeah. Your vote has been counted. Dalligan. Yeah, Dalligan. And um, I. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com got 76 percent of the vote to johnny gets his job back (laughs) well well done glad that you survived um you know, weight has been an ongoing issue for you, mm. and you actually credit 
our good friend, psychic medium John Edward, yeah. with saving your life. Well, to a degree, because he pulled me aside when Dano and I had him on. We used to talk to him on the radio whenever he came over. Um, and, um, you know, whether you believe psychic mediums or not, he told me certain things about my dad that I didn't know and stuff about uh, Dano's um, family that he wouldn't have known and even I didn't know. And then one time after one of the WS pre-recorded broadcast things, he said, John, have you got, I just want to have a quick second with you, a quick word. And he said, um, how's it all going? And I said, oh, good, good. And he said, it's just that my guys, I thought he said my guys, as in my advisors. What he said was my guide, guide. my guide has said that you've got a big, um, you know, you've got to make some decisions. You're going, you're going to be in charge and you need to get your health up to date. And I put on about, you know, I put on some weight after being very good for, I think it was before Studio 10 started. Um, and well, wasn't this what led you to do Celebrity Fit Club? No, this was in Australia. Ah. So I did Celebrity Fit Club um, years before in England, 2005, mm. and I got my, my weight down and I won Celebrity Fit Club and I donated. I didn't understand the yeah, yeah. timeline. Yeah, no, so the timeline was I did Celebrity Fit Club in England, which became like the forerunner of Biggest Loser in Australia. I did three series of Celebrity Fit Club because, A, I won the first one, mm because I was so paranoid of being weighed on national television. <laughs> we had 11 million viewers Amazing. on a Thursday night. It ran for six months, the show. Um, and then they said, you were fantastic. Would you come back and be on the next series in, in a year's time? I'm going, oh, God. And it was like two teams, the boys versus the girls. Let's see who will lose his weight fast. I did that, and the boys team won, I think. And then they said, would you come back and be on series three, which was two teams of celebrities uh, Vanessa Feltz's team and then another team. And I did it three times, Celebrity Fit Club. So that was fantastic for me, an amazing profile. And wasn't just Jono, the Aussie DJ, but I see you on the Fit Club, Jono. Good on you, mate. We love you. Um, and then I came back to Australia, 2007. Dano and I start doing the radio show again. Before that, I did a, right. year, I did a year of radio with Julia Zamiro because I thought mm. I don't want to come straight back to Australia in 2007 and just go straight back into Jono and Dano. Yeah. And he was doing other stuff anyway uh, and working with his autistic son and, and being involved with... They do great work. Yeah, and, and the Lizard Centre and, and uh, helping Jack and all that kind mm. of stuff. So I said, let's do... I did a year and a bit of um, myself and Julia Zamiro. And she loved She you. was fantastic and she's such a lovely person. And then she started doing... Um, rock whiz live and doing these ad lib shows around australia so that's when a year later i said to dano do you want to get the band back together and we did that that's when john edward came on the show and did this whole little right thing about you need to get your health back in shape you know and my guides tell me this and that and you've got you've got i don't know what it is but you've got something happening in the next six months or a year that you need to be ready for and that's when my mum passed away about about eight to ten months later. Right. So that was kind of like, boy, it was. Kind that had a huge effect on you, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It scared. You loved the, your mum. It scared the shit out of me, and it, I knew that my mum was going to pass away sooner or later because she was she was fine and happy, but she was getting more and more, uh, you know, 
But you still talk about her all the time. Oh, yeah. And I think most people who have a good relationship with their mums or their dads. I've always felt that you had a really strong bond with your mum. Maybe with both parents, but specifically your mum. You talk about her quite often. Well, once my father died, he died in 1988, and... one of the things he said to me was, "Look, I'm not going to be around forever. If I have a heart attack or whatever, I want you know, I want you to look after Mum, and I want you to make sure that she's happy and fine." So, um, in 1988, just after my birthday, and in the bicentennial year, that's when my dad died, and he died one night at home in bed with my mum, which scared the hell out of her. Mm. And that was the, the then I thought, right, I'm in charge now. I'm the yeah. I'm the dad. I, you know, I've got to look after mum. And I think I was always close to both parents, but I was always a bit of a mummy's boy. <laughs> and I think a lot of people are. You know, you see how some people in show business just fall apart when their mums die. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that that's something that kind of resonates with a lot of people because, you know, their mum or their dad are... Uh, are they that sort of sounding board? That's the person that goes, good on your son, you get out there and show them. Uh, at one stage, it was like being overweight was going to be the thing that killed you, but you got some news, something completely unexpected. Mm. Well, it could be overweight that kills any of us, let's face it. And, of course. Uh, you know, well, I, have to, I have to be careful because my dad died of a heart attack um, and his mother died of a heart attack and she always had a bit of a weight problem. My dad didn't really have much of a weight problem. He was quite fit. He smoked for a while but gave all that up. But, yeah, he died of a heart attack. My mum died at 86 of old age. But then last year I, I was having regular blood tests to mm. check on my cholesterol and everything. And then last year I got um, a reading on my PSA level, which is what checks your prostate health and the protein levels and stuff in your prostate. And it went from sort of – it's supposed to be about uh, one or two um, to seven. And uh, – that is that they, that sort of flags up that there could be something wrong. Yeah. So I went and had a um, um, a referral to a, an amazing guy, Professor Philip Stricker, at St Vincent's, and that was a Friday a Friday lunchtime. Uh, we were all going out for drinks on Studio Ten because. Um, Damo, the barista, yeah. it was his last day, and he was going. We we're all going to the pub with Damo, and then I get this this phone call saying you will organise your referral. And I said, I want to come now. I want to do yeah. it today. Because to, if it's seven... Because living with that idea of what's going on, you need to Yeah, know. I don't even want to go through the weekend knowing yeah. that. So I said to Damo, I'll be there. I'll be at the point or wherever they were going. And I'll, Probably the I'll, point. <laughs> the point it was, actually. I said, oh, I've got to go up to um, St Vincent's and see a sick friend. And then fast forward to an hour later, I'm sitting there and then they said, Philip can see you now. We had a quick chat and he said, well, it's a seven... Uh, which is not abnormally high, but it means that something's not right. Have you had a digital examination? I'm going, no. My doctor said it wasn't necessary, my GP. And um, he said, well, let's do a digital examination now. So he puts the rubber gloves on and puts his finger up my bottom. And then within five minutes, he's saying, well, um, you have a swap. The prostate is larger than it should be. And there's a hard lump on the outside, which I'd say you've got cancer. Jesus. So like my... 
my my blood just chilled mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there with my head going, all right, is this a movie? It's like when Ben Stiller was told he had prostate cancer, he said, I suddenly thought I was in a movie and they were going to say, okay, that's great, Ben. We're just going to move the cameras yeah. now and get the re- reverse angle, blah, blah, blah. And that's how I felt. I felt like this is so weird. I'm in a guy in Professor Stricker's office and he's just told me I've got prostate cancer. We need to have a, a biopsy and we need to think about the what you need to do and blah de blah de blah. And that was a Friday afternoon in June of twenty seventeen. You came and told me about it and we obviously conversed a lot about you it. You burst into tears. <laughs> no, you didn't. I would have been a bit teary. You were a bit, yeah. I think we both were a bit. Um can I read out a text you mm. sent me around the time? Uh, This is from July 10 from last year. Thanks for your hug this morning, Rob. It's all going to be fine. Thanks for being a great boss and understanding my treatment battle. I'm going to come out the other side in 12 months, they say. It's totally treatable, they assure me and Margot. Had my first injection in a couple of weeks. Love you. That attitude from you was evident from the beginning. You were always like, I'm not not done. I'm beating this. I'm absolutely beating this. And I remember thinking... Oh, God. You know, I, I absolutely had the thought, we're going to lose Jono. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely did think that. and But you just had this, nut nah, not going to happen. That's you, what went through my head when I was sitting in Professor Stricker's office. It was like, oh, my God, he just said I've got cancer. It's like every movie that I've seen, like The Big Sick or 50-50, you know, with, with, with uh, Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen and all that kind of stuff. And you kind of go... Okay, snap out of it. Move into default mode, or okay, what do we do? How do we, what do we need to do? And that was it. I had that split second of shit. I've got cancer. I'm going to die. To hold on a second. How many people do I know that have had prostate cancer experiences? You know, whether it be friends mm. or people like Alan Jones or people like Robert De Niro, Ben Stiller, Kirk Pangeli from In Excess, and you suddenly go, well, they're all still alive. That means I'm going to be one of them. And you certainly projected that, but did you always feel that way? Were there dark times where you went, it's going to get me? I would probably lie in bed occasionally going, shit, what happens about, you know, because what what happens if this goes, what what happens if the chemo doesn't work? You suddenly go to those sort of what if situations. What happens if they go, oh my God, this is so weird. The chemo hasn't worked and it's actually spread and it's just below your brain. So you just have those kind of weird thoughts going, "What, what happens? What if, what? Then you go, hold on a second. And then you think about all the positive things mm. and all the people who are lying in hospital now on drips or on whatever, you know, with people like poor old Angela Bishop and her husband Pete. Well, that's and- the thing. You discovered um, you didn't know about Barry Dubois and uh, Pete, Angela's husband, mm. until you turned up one day and they were both getting treatment. Yeah, I knew basically that Baz had had a bit of a battle mm. and then it had gone away and then he'd sort of left it and left it. Um, and then I ran into Pete Bakey, and that's Angela Bishop's late husband, and he was also at the St Vincent's at the Kinghorn Centre where I was. And I'm going, oh, my God, it's like a sort of little Channel 10 social know, club I up I think here. a few people were worried about you knowing about him because that was very, very quiet. And yeah. You're not known for being no, quiet, John. exactly. <laughs> well, you can imagine what it's been like for me for a year, you know, mm. telling some people at Channel 10 and telling some executives at 
at uh, Fairfax mm. and at uh, 2GB and, and Talking Lifestyle. And then they went, whatever you need, you know, the, the guys at, at, uh, at Talking Lifestyle and, and Adam Lang and the guys at uh, in the radio, they just said, whatever you need, do time off. Because there was a girl in the newsroom at the time who was battling breast cancer. They right. had on and off battles with Alan Jones and his health. Um, so that's why I wanted to tell you as soon as possible because I thought if I've got to have chemo, I'm going to lose all my hair and I'm going to need a wig. And that was one of the we, things. We talked about getting a wig. We talked about we, it. We had joked years before about yeah. getting a wig because of your changing hairstyle. Mm, mm. But this time we actually had to consider it. But you went through two extraordinary lengths to make sure you didn't lose your hair. So tell me about this frozen cap. I, I read something that's... 20 times worse than a migraine. It's an ice cap. It's called the ice cap. And it was a, a, like an English invention that uh, that Australian researchers were also involved in it. And they said at uh, St Vincent, I said, look, I don't want to lose my hair because mm. I'm doing daily television. I'm doing Studio 10 and, you know, it's not going to look... If we've got pre-recorded ads and then I'm suddenly there with, with, uh, with chemo hair or wearing a wig and then I throw to myself with hair, it's just going to be very strange. Or do we suddenly say... Look, this is the story, Australia, and I've got I've got no hair, and I just sort of thought it's just going to be too jarring for everyone and for viewers and whatever. Uh, and they said, well, there's this thing called an ice cap. A lot of people hate it because it is like suddenly ice cream brain freeze. Mm. It's basically like a big, thick, uh, rubbery ice cap or like shower cap that you. Put I remember on. you sending me a photo. Yeah. Well, that's the one that appears in uh, in the Women's Weekly and, and the press. It's me with the thumbs up wearing my ice cap having chemo. Um, but it worked. I mean, the thing is, uh, you have a couple of paracetamols beforehand and you get like about six or seven or eight or nine minutes of brain freeze and then the pain just sort of dissipates. It's not fabulously comfortable, but then uh, an hour and a half later after the chemo's finished, they take it off your head and you've got icicles and ice mm. in your hair. And what it does is it stops the, the chemo uh, drugs from going above your sort of uh, hairline and into your scalp. Amazing. Yeah, so I lost my hair, virtually all my body hair and my pubes and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I wasn't showing those very much on Studio 10 anyway. Well... Sometimes. Occasionally. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was just amazing that I've been so lucky and people like Carlotta and, you know, they were saying, don't worry, darling, we've got lots of people in the, in the drag industry who can organise a wig and get, get yeah. match this and do that. But I was very, You had very, a lot of love. Yeah, it was fantastic. Was it disappointing um, 10 management knew what you were going through but still reduced your role even before you came out of the with the all clear? Was that just... Heartbreaking. I think it wasn't heartbreaking because the thing was I'd been doing... You love live TV. I love live TV and basically at that stage I'm thinking I'm doing chemo and... uh, a management knew. But, Jono, you, you were very – and I said to you, you can t- have as much time. Mm. When I was still there, I said you can have as much time off. You didn't want time off. I didn't you want time off. You still wanted the live TV. Well, because the chemo was like once a month and it was on Fridays. Mm. So basically I could do Studio 10 in the morning and then do um, the chemo, go home. I took the night off the radio show. So I had Friday, Saturday, Sunday to recover. And then by Monday I was usually fine because I was very lucky with this new kind of chemo that it doesn't knock you around as much it knocked some people around but i was lucky and the fact was i thought maybe in some ways not having to do five days a week of studio 10 was actually in some ways a blessing in disguise because we were about to sell the house and i'm thinking you know what 
And Margot said to me, you don't need to really be there five days a week. So management spoke to you about that, did they? No, not really. I just got a phone call at the end of the year when my contract had run out saying, look, we want you to come back in the new year, but because of your your health and also because of the budget of the show and the usual Channel 10 stuff of, like, trying to stay, save money, um, how would you feel about doing less next year, which was... Sorry, I called bullshit. <laughs> but that's, you know, I mean, that's, in my head, that's basically... But you, you had a... Um, it suited you me. Ser- which is great, yeah. um, and I'm pleased about that. Yeah. But you, you did have a fractured relationship with some management at 10. Well... I've always had fractured relationships with some management. Whether, whether <laughs> and look, with you, I'm guilty as charged. And with Channel Seven at stay, you know, Triple M, we got Dano and I got let we got let go from Triple M. Mm. We were number one at night with like seventy five or eighty percent of the available audience between Today FM, Triple M, and our biggest person up against us was Two SM. Yeah. With, uh, with with you know like so, uh, they said. If you're going to do Late Night with John and Dano, we want it to be a Triple M production. We said, well, no, that's not the plan. We love Triple M and we love being on the radio, but we're going to do it. Most people would see that as a great thing, each promoting the other. It was the 80s, Rob. And they were going, (laughs) we want you guys to wear leather jackets and stuff. So, yes, look, I I now I got a lovely um, letter from um, Paul Anderson, the boss of, of, of Tan, saying, it's fantastic that you've come through the other side. I loved what you did in the Women's Weekly and on Studio 10. So they have been supportive in that regard. And mm. I think in some ways... I'm glad to hear that. In some ways it's been, it's been, it's been pref- preferential for me because, A, I still get to be on the TV whether I'm there or not. Yeah. And I'm basically going in two or three days a week now. So I've right. got my... I, and what I said to Stephen Tate, who was the executive who rang me, he said, I, I want you to do more stuff on the panel, which is the discussion we've had over the years of, okay, Jono's doing the warm-up, Jono's doing the voiceovers, Jono's going to be doing segments... And like I, everyone loved it when I did, you know, John Cleese and Eric Idle or yeah, I loved it. Ruth Pointer and John, I was going out and doing that. And then it was kind of the thing that you had a, a, a bit of a problem with. It was like, it's really hard sometimes because suddenly. I, I think having you as a panelist and then throwing to an, ad, an advertorial is an issue. Yeah. Um, having said that, I never had a problem having you do a record with John Cleese or something yeah, like yeah. that, doing an interview. Because In fact, pre- I loved it. I, I think that John Cleese interview was one of the best interviews we ever ran. It was great. And even going down to, to Barrel for um, Jeff Harvey's yep. 80th birthday stuff brilliant. and things like that. And you said, look, it's great if it's on tape because then it's now... It makes sense. Yeah, Jono's here in the studio, but Jono um, caught up with so-and-so. Yeah. We show the thing and then it's like, anyway, let's see what Jono's got for us. And I think that's where now there are some advertorials that I did, especially going through the prostate cancer, I didn't really want to do. Jono's with Janine talking about funeral insurance. Yes, yeah. So, that makes sense. So in some ways it was a blessing because I, I... Sometimes these things can be a blessing. I think I um, have an issue with the bastardry behind it, even though the benefits might be good. Yeah, but there's always that in every TV or radio show. You know, how many times could you and I fill another podcast with things? Go- <laughs> you know, I mean, we had such major problems with Triple M and it was like, this is even better than a Channel 10 story. Jono and Dano are taking some time off. This was during a, <laughs> during a radio show. We got replaced during a show. Frank Vincent came on and, and did the, sh- the rest of the show for us. Well, we, hang on. You got sacked halfway through a show. We were officially sacked. It was our last day before Jono and Dana went on holidays. It was it was contract negotiation. They had the shits with us so badly, they brought Frank Vincent in early, a half an hour or an hour early. 
And it's like, all right, you guys might as well go now. Okay, what? On holidays now? So yeah, just at the end of this track, Frank's taking over. Oh my God. So there you are. There's a story. 1985. Jono and Dano are going on holidays. We That's never, extraordinary. We, we never came back from Triple M's holiday. <laughs> <laughs> How important are relationships in the business? Look, I think they're very important. When you, when you, you know, I told you before about Oscar's working for Behind Ooh. the News in Adelaide, and he goes, "Oh, this the, my new boss Ben Darcy said to say hello to you." And I'm going, "Why?" Well, he goes, "Well, he was working at Sky News at Isleworth, and he employed you, Dad, to come out and do the newspaper <laughs> reviews with, with Adam Bolton." I'm going, "You're kidding me!" And I've been to Adelaide to see Ben, and he said that oh, we also have a friend in common, Neil Sean. We used to get him to do stuff on Sky News. Yeah, we love Neil Sean. So it's it's so bizarre, you know. I learned a long time ago. Even the guy who said you guys are going on holidays from Triple M, see ya, Trevor Smith was the program director and I'm still great friends with Trevor Smith because all these things, we all mellow with older age. I hope so, John. Yeah. I hope to mellow one day. Yeah. Now you're mellow, don't worry. You're a very young man. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a lot of series of McKnight Tonight left in you. That's it. Um, throughout your career, you've met A-list celebrities, producers, agents, network bosses. Who gave you the best piece of advice and what was it? I think Michael Parkinson gave me the best piece of advice when I was doing Simon Townsend's Wonderworld, and I've met him many times since then. He just said, listen to the answers. Mm. So if you're interviewing a footballer, if you're interviewing Cher, if you're interviewing anyone, take the time to listen to what they're saying because that's where the next question comes from. Great piece of advice. And I've never forgotten that. And Mm. then uh, when we had Cher on the radio show in London, she'd just been on Parkinson, and I walked into this restaurant not far from the radio station, and there was Michael Parkinson having lunch. <laughs> went, Hello, Jono. Hello. And I went, Guess what, Michael? I saw Cher on the show, and he goes, oh, lovely, blah, blah, blah. I go, you got a bit of advice for me? He got more advice. What do you want? <laughs> I go, I'm doing Cher tomorrow. And he said, he said, talk about her wigs. They'll say, don't talk about the wigs, but she loves talking about her wigs, you know, and as always, just listen to was the answer. Was he geeing you up or was he right? No, he was great. He was fantastic because it was like I was thinking, oh, my God, because you get these things when you interview the Elton Johns or the, or the shares going, you can't ask this, you can't ask that. She yeah. only drinks Perrier water. It's got to be that brand. She has to be no one else with her in the lift and all that kind of crap. And then you meet these people and they're absolutely fine. Mm. Usually the way, isn't it? Yeah, and and Parky was was fantastic and he's always been a a wonderful, friendly and omnipotent, you know, genius. Mm. What's the biggest lesson you've learnt throughout your career? Don't hold grudges, basically. Just get get over it. Get over yourself and get over it. You know, like the things when we've had little fights on the the TV show, we always had the fight, had the big flare-up, and then we had a big hug and said, you know, that's it. I couldn't agree with that more. You know, and I think that was the thing with even the Sunrise thing and the Harry Potter story. You know, I always kissed and made up with with, with the producers and hopefully with Koshy, Mel and Koshy, because I was back there. And then, you know, I've always had a relationship with, you know, I just think that maybe I'm stupid, maybe I'm simplistic, but I'm big enough and thick enough skinned to be able to just go, oh, my God, even talking now and you reminding me of things that have happened with Chris Evans or with, mm. with Koshi and you just kind of go, oh, my God, I completely forgotten about that. You know, you have these, you know, I've been doing this since 1980 or 79 with Wonderworld started in August 79 
And you can imagine the number of people I've talked to and the number of mm. people I've pissed off or <laughs> made friends with or, you know, it's like it's just it's not never-ending. I still get, since the whole prostate cancer thing's come out, I, I got a lovely message from Stephen Fry. I had a message yesterday from Tina Arena. I've had, you know, tweets nice. and stuff from Kylie and people like that saying, you know, you've got this thing, you can do it. And, you know, you feel humbled and, and very loved when you know that people in the UK and people in Australia care about me. And I think that's what most people in show business uh, and most people in real life, but in show business, they just want to be loved. They just want people to go, oh, that's nice. It's not just all people going, piss off. We don't give a shit about you. Well, Jonathan Coleman, I can certainly say I love you. Thank you. And I, I love can you. say that with honesty. I love you too. What was your name again? <laughs> Joe. <laughs> Joe. Love you, Joe. Um, thank you for being. Thank you for doing this. Your honesty and y- you. You've just been marvellous. Thank you so it's much. It's been a pleasure and uh, good luck with uh, McKnight tonight. And uh, whenever I'm in Australia and anywhere in the world, I never miss my episode of McKnight tonight. And I download them regularly. Well, on that note, it's good night. Good night, from McKnight. Fun insightful interviews from a watchdog producer with nothing to lose. Good night tonight. Good night tonight. Good night tonight. It's good night from McKnight tonight. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.